everyone. Thank you all for joining. Today we have the great honor and privilege of having Dr. Stone with us. Associate Professor Emily Stone is a respiratory physician and clinical researcher at St. Vincent's Hospital, Sydney, and School of Clinical Medicine at the University of New South Wales. Her specific research interests include quality use of clinical data, lung cancer screening, and tobacco control. She's a principal investigator for the International Lung Screen Trial, investigating selection criteria and nodule management approaches for lung cancer screening with low-dose chest CT. She's the past head of the Lung Cancer Assembly of the Asia-Pacific Society of Respirology and previous chair of the Tobacco Control Committee of the IASLC. She co-convenes the Thoracic Society of Australasia Tobacco Control Committee and is deputy chair of the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australasia. Dr. Stone, thank you so much for your time and your willingness to be here with us. We're so excited to have you. Thanks, my pleasure. So to introduce myself and my team, my name is Priyanka Senthal, and with me I have Drake Wong and Anish Gokulam, and we are part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, or ALSI for short, and we would like to take a few minutes to share about our organization and introduce lung cancer and lung cancer screening. ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that is working to raise awareness about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. We are a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. And we do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. And lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are on 73%. We believe educating people about lung cancer lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. So far, we have given over 250 presentations on lung cancer lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the U.S., as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. We've also worked with um, over 345 mayors from every single U.S. state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. We've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including multiple mayors, Arizona State Senator Leela Alston, who is a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf and Lieutenant Governor of Colorado Diane Primavera to issue public service announcements emphasizing the importance of lung cancer screening. And in addition to our education, outreach, and advocacy efforts, we recently started a podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and experts to share their stories. Elsie also worked with U.S. Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions, recognizing the importance of their detection of lung cancer through screening. And in December 2022, the U.S. Senate passed a bipartisan resolution for the third year in a row, designating November 2022 as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month and expressing support for the early detection and treatment of lung cancer. Senate Resolution 863 expands on previous resolutions by emphasizing the need for efforts to increase awareness of screening among veterans, women, and racial minorities. ALSI also actively worked with Representative Brennan Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine Zoffer Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. So lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using a low-dose computed tomography scan. This scan uses low-radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than five minutes to complete. The United States Preventive Services Task Force, also known as the USPSTF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. 
And right now they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80 who have a 20 pack year smoking history or more and who currently smoke or have quit within the past 15 years get annual low dose CT scans. One pack year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year and therefore 20 pack years can be met in a multitude of ways, including smoking one pack a day for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. If you know anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria discussed, please encourage them to take our lung cancer screening eligibility survey so they can learn whether they are eligible and have the opportunity to connect with our team at LC to guide them through the screening process. And finally, we wanna highlight that there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking, such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy of lungs. We believe that it is really important that we recognize this, these additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States who have never smoked still get lung cancer. So thank you everyone for listening to that quick presentation about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. Without further ado, we can jump right into the podcast. We have a few questions prepared for Dr. Stone, but we will also have a Q&A session at the end with questions from our live audience. So um, our first question for you, Dr. Stone, is could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and what a day in your life looks like? Yes, I guess I can. And thanks for that um, excellent introductory presentation. So I'm a respiratory physician, a pulmonologist. I work in a teaching hospital in Sydney, Australia, and combine clinical work with research work. And like many clinicians, my days vary and include clinical teaching, research work, meetings, lovely things like working collaboratively with other investigators and students, and then all those nice things you do outside of medicine as well. So for our first question, what is the current state of lung cancer and lung cancer screening in Australia? So in lung cancer in Australia is similar to many Western countries in that we may be seeing that we're past the peak incidence perhaps in men, but not in women, and that that primarily relates to the decline in smoking rates over the last couple of decades. But we are seeing also the emergence of non-smoking related lung cancer in a different group. And we could talk perhaps about some of those features. It remains one of the most, the top five common cancers. It's the biggest cancer killer in both men and women. And it's something that we're needing to address urgently. With the introduction of new therapies, we are seeing some slight impacts on long-term outcomes. But like many other countries, we would expect that we'd get a much greater benefit in terms of survival more quickly with the introduction of lung cancer screening. And in terms of lung cancer screening, we do not yet have a program. We were very delighted in October last year when our Medical Services Advisory Committee, which is a national body that advises our government on things to do in medicine, recommended the introduction of lung cancer screening to the Australian government, and that's yet to unfold any further. In your opinion, do you believe Australia should adopt national lung cancer screening guidelines like the USPSTF guidelines for lung cancer in the US? So I think we definitely should have a program and it should be based on validated guidelines. We, in, and I'll talk about it in our trial, we use different selection criteria from USPSTF. Our advisory committee referred to similar categorical selection criteria in their recommendation. So we haven't settled on our selection criteria just yet, but we would anticipate national guidelines for sure. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Stone. Our next question is, what would need to be done to implement a successful national lung cancer screening program in Australia? What do you foresee might be some of the major challenges? 
million dollar questions. So we are looking very hard at the research level and lung, at lung cancer implementation in Australia. And some of the challenges will be very similar to the United States and to other countries, and some of them will be very local. So the universal challenges will include equity of access and awareness campaigns, reducing stigma and providing very high quality pathway from referral to the CT and then pathways beyond. And some of the local differences, I think, relate to our particular high-risk groups. And we have a very strong focus on our Indigenous population who have much higher smoking rates at the moment. And that's a very unfortunate result from history and reflects some of the difficulties that these groups have suffered, which are very much high in our minds. We've got big distances. We've got big distances like you have in the United States, but our distances are emptier and our terrain can be a little rougher in some places. So we have to think very carefully about how we will provide access to scans and then ongoing care. We're looking hard at our surgical workforce and we're look hard, looking hard at our radiological workforce, at our data management. And to be truthful, we're looking at how you have done it in the United States and what we can learn from it, the good bits and the bad bits. So one of your main focuses has been your role as a principal investigator of the International Lung Screen Trial, or the ILST. Could you walk us through the trial for those that may be unfamiliar and the main research questions you were trying to address? It's a little different from the Nelson and NLST. It's not a randomized controlled trial looking for mortality benefit. It was a cohort study, and it was looking to at two primary outcomes. One was to evaluate selection criteria, and the other was nodule management. In terms of the selection criteria, we looking to test PLCO 2012 selection criteria, the risk calculator compared with USPSTF guidelines, and we have published on that, demonstrating certainly in our context probably a slightly better efficacy with PLCO. And the second one was uh, nodule management. We haven't published that data yet, but we use the PANCAN model, which we will, which is again a nodule risk calculator, comparing that with uh, volume evaluation as per the Nelson study or axial. Uh, evaluation and as per NLST. So just looking at those subtle differences and testing these selection criteria in our particular context. And that's an, that's an international mm-hmm. study. So there's multiple, sorry, Australian sites and several overseas sites, including predominantly Vancouver. In the US, the USPSTF lung cancer screening criteria are quite rigid given the categorical nature and don't include other risk factors for lung cancer such as exposure to secondhand smoke, radon, asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, and other lung cancer diseases. So the USPSTF criteria therefore misses a lot of individuals who might be at high risk for lung cancer for these reasons, but do not personally have a heavy smoking history. So how do you think we can best optimize the patient selection criteria for lung cancer screening? Such a great question. It's very um, appropriate to use these sorts of selection criteria in the high-risk smoking cancer group. But I think we're all very aware that there's more to lung cancer than that. I don't think there will be one universal set of selection criteria that will capture the smoking-related and the non-smoking groups. And we're seeing that from the talent study out of Taiwan, where the risk criteria there focus very much on targeting people with a, a minimal or light smoking history. We're about to embark on a study of never and light smoking uh, history, lung cancer screening in Australia, looking to sort to identify that in rich population. And that will incorporate ethnicity and family history, for example. 
I think even in the, ne- the never smoking population, it may, may well be that the risk criteria in Australia will differ from Taiwan, will differ from the United States. And that's where I think risk calculators can come into their own because you can tweak them and they can be a, a, adjusted uh, subtly to capture those differences. I suspect uh, we'll all have to test our own populations. So I think that the, the simpler categorical criteria are probably not going to work for teasing out those uh, different populations, but we haven't proven that yet. But I think we're going to need some some more complex approaches. But I don't think we should be frightened of that. They can all be put into online questionnaires that can be fairly straightforward to complete. They just need to be tested well. Absolutely. I know there have been several studies that have looked at how the USPSTF criteria and eligibility for lung cancer screening, according to the USPSTF criteria, varies um, among different racial groups. And studies have shown that, especially for racial minorities, oftentimes they have quit smoking for more than 15 years, and that is a major cause of ineligibility. And so is just the pack your smoking history criteria. And so a lot of racial minorities don't meet that criteria. And even within, um, even comparing genders or sexes, women diagnosed with lung cancer oftentimes have a lighter smoking history. So I definitely agree with your point, Dr. Stone, that a universal lung cancer screening criteria or guidelines might not be the most ideal or optimal situation. And we might need to cater and target it towards different populations and, and patient groups. I'm sure you're right. And with my tobacco control hat on, I draw attention to the some of the science that characterizes some of the, the um, differences in nicotine metabolism that can influence tobacco smoke exposure in different ethnic groups and uh, in the sexes as well. So I think we, we're going to have to learn to take a nuanced approach to this. Yes, absolutely. And so we touched upon some of the shortcomings of the USPSTF criteria, and you, you mentioned that you are also looking at you know, the good and the bad of the USPSTF criteria. Could you talk to us about what you believe are some of the, some of the successes of the USPSTF criteria and what we could build upon in the future? So I think that if we're talking specifically about the criteria, I think that they've been wonderful in getting screening to the, its prominent place already. I think we we will always regard the NLST as a landmark study and, and really pivotal in this field. And the Nelson study also landmark used categorical criteria as well. And so they're not to be dismissed. But I think that, and we may end up with categorical criteria in Australia simply because of the simplicity. So they won't, they can't be dismissed. But I think that in terms of rolling out or implementing a lung cancer screening study, what we look to from the established program in the United States is is the benefits, and 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 we are actually seeing in some analyses, I think, in different states and different groups in the United States, improving uptake rates. So I think the last figure I saw was was north of fourteen percent, perhaps even north of twenty twenty percent in some areas. But somebody on a, a a meeting I was at recently made the good point that we're very good in lung cancer screening either in the trial setting or in real life, at providing screening to the people who need it least. And I thought that was a nice way of putting it. So it's not hard to provide lung cancer screening to affluent, well-educated populations who are literate in health matters. And it's really difficult to provide it to remote rural populations with high smoking rates, a mistrust in health health services, and who uh, have distances to cover. Does that answer your question? I think I've forgotten bits of it. 
No, absolutely. And I think you, you made some really great points there as well, because as you mentioned, increasing lung cancer screening rates, especially in, in rural areas, I think that is definitely going to be a major challenge for the field. And um, especially even within the U.S., um, where we do have several accredited lung cancer screening centers in each state, in, in some states, especially in the, in the northwest, there are, there are only a couple of screening centers in, in one state. And so individuals who might be living several hours away from a, an accredited lung cancer screening center will, will have to drive longer distances. And, and researchers have shown that individuals living farther away from those centers are less likely to get screened. And, and geographical barriers, economical barriers, cultural, and, and also just a, a mistrust in, in the medical system, I think are all, all issues that can um, reduce the uptake of lung cancer screening. So um, I completely agree with, with everything that you had said. So one of the major difficulties uh, many lung cancer screening trials have faced is low participation and attrition over the study period. What did patient participation look like in the ILST and what strategies or techniques did you use to encourage continued participation in the trial? So we we recruited uh, in a number of ways and, and we've yet to publish those data we've done some analyses community outreach mass advertising so not unlike the nlst there was some very specific efforts through the electoral role and through primary care we don't yet have the specifics on that but we we were able to detect some differences for example between the australian settings and and, and canadian settings in the success say of social media uh, much more successful in canada than in australia in terms of so so we were all about all sites were able to recruit to or close to target, uh, but we don't have the denominator. In terms of continued participation, again, I can't quite tell you X percent of baseline scans, how many people went on to their second scan, but the answer is most. And we had very good um, responses, certainly in my centre, for the uh, all of the questionnaires we, we wanted completed, quality of life, other factors, etc. We hit COVID for the, the end of the second round of scanning, so that slowed us up a little bit, but by and large we were able to manage to get most people scanned who, who wanted to show up for a scan. I think we had to, in terms of encouraging continued participation in the trial, we tried our best to be organised. We had excellent research nurses and research staff who communicated well with the patients. And I think we had a very motivated uh, participant group because they self-selected in response to the awareness campaigns and advertising and put themselves into the study. So they're not representative, probably, of the bulk of people who are eligible for screening. We had a motivated group. I think we would have to accept and be aware that that if we were looking to capture the broader uh, group of eligible potential eligible participants we would have to overcome other barriers yeah and you mentioned that the plco m2012 model has higher sensitivity than the the uspscf screening criteria but for those who may not know the plco risk prediction model takes into account a variety of additional risk factors for lung cancer not just age and smoking history, but also um, education and a variety of other risk factors that are not, that might not be easily attainable from a patient's electronic health record, for example. And I think that has been one of the major um, limiting factors in implementing it on a large scale in the U.S. And so uh, you had just mentioned that you had pretty good participation in those questionnaires. And so do you have any strategies or any advice or insights on how um, if we were to implement the PLCO uh, risk prediction model or model similar to that, how we could, you know, easily get 
information that would be needed for those models. So we, we obtained that information from the participants themselves. We started off with a telephone interview, but we were able to transfer the, um, the questionnaire. It's a questionnaire to an online platform. And in fact, it's easy. To, we had it in a format that was easy to do on a mobile phone. So we would not, nothing, nothing's decided. But from this trial point of view, and certainly from my point of view, it would be best if the uh, participants, the potential participants filled in the questionnaire, that you wouldn't try and identify all of the PLCO in 2012 data yourself from an electronic health record that would be guaranteed to fail. The way I think to recruit into a screening setting for people with a smoking history is to track who smokes. That's not as easy as it sounds. That's not well recorded. So I think it'll have to be a combination of approaches, primary care, electronic health record, awareness campaigns, outreach, and simply asking people when they come to appointments. We're aware that we cannot expect primary care practitioners to sit and go through the questionnaire with the participants themselves, that our system's not set up for that. They wouldn't be able to uh, factor that into their practice in the way the current system is set up. We haven't quite nutted out how we do that, but I could anticipate that an education campaign followed by access to the questionnaire followed by the participants completing themselves would be one way to do it. One of the major challenges within the U.S. has been educating communities about lung cancer screening and even healthcare providers to ensure people are aware of the screening guidelines and who needs to get screened. We know that you are very involved in lung cancer education efforts. So could you please tell us a little more about that aspect of your work? So I think that's done at several levels. You know, there's, there's the teaching level, there's working with my own patients I've worked for a long time intensively with our own multidisciplinary team in my institution. And more broadly, the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australasia has a a very um, strong focus on patient education. We have our own podcast series on community education. And as well with the Lung Foundation of Australia, Lung Foundation Australia, there's a a focus on education there. So it's done at at institution and health organisation level. I think that we have not probably yet seen a a national health department federally funded screening blitz, as it were. We're not ready for that because we don't have the program. But I think that's probably where we'd have to go. We certainly have that for other cancer screening and and we're learning a lot from our other cancer screening programs. It's complex and we need to be creative in our approach to this. Can you please explain um, or expand upon the current stigma around lung cancer? It's We've talked about this in a lot of our podcasts, but it's um, really unfortunate that, you know, lung cancer does have this stigma attached to it. And and for, and for anyone who might be unfamiliar, it, there's been a strong association between lung cancer and smoking. And that has led to terms such as, you know, calling lung cancer a smoker's disease or just strong ties between smoking and lung cancer, which which leads has led to the misconception that you know anyone diagnosed with lung cancer must have had a, a strong uh, or heavy smoking history. And regardless of whether a patient you know does have a smoking history or not, lung cancer or diagnosis like that of lung cancer you know is really life altering. And when it comes with such stigma, it can make it make the patient feel guilt or shame um, associated with a, a diagnosis. And and that has uh, patients have voiced that sometimes a point of hesitancy to get screened is, you know, the potential stigma or 
or shame that might come with getting a diagnosis. And so we just wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about what ideas you have that we can implement to reduce the stigma around lung cancer. So first of all, no one deserves lung cancer, no matter what. The second thing is that people who smoke are not to blame. We know that nicotine is highly addictive and it's ruthlessly pushed by an unscrupulous industry that ignores science and focuses on profits and it markets to children. And we see that, we have seen that with cigarettes and we see it with e-cigarettes. It was the pivotal uncovering in the mid-20th century of the link between tobacco and lung cancer that finally led to the strong health messages that smoking cigarettes was bad for you. The link between lung cancer and tobacco exposure is much more prominent in the general mind than the link between tobacco exposure and anything else, anything else. What is not appreciated as well as it should be is that if people who smoke stop, their risk of cardiovascular mortality and morbidity drops really fast. It takes a lot longer for lung cancer. So it's a cultural, social phenomenon that the link between lung cancer and smoking is very strong in the public mind and the link between other things and smoking is much less strong. And then there's the whole question of blame. That's where the stigma comes from. And it took a lot of energy, which included awareness campaigns that use doom and gloom to push down on smoking rates. And that doom and gloom has spread and caused the stigma. That's where it comes from. And if anybody listening can remember when the AIDS epidemic started, a similar stigma surrounded that. And that took a long time to be undone. And I personally believe that one of the things that undid the stigma around AIDS was successful therapy. So then we had long-term survivors who could advocate and then be seen as just members of the community. We haven't quite got a large body of lung cancer survivors who can advocate and be seen as members of the community. We're getting there slowly. And we also have some major challenges in that many of the longer-term survivors of lung cancer have never smoked and have reasonably different priorities. I think we need massive efforts towards education of healthcare providers as well as the general public. Even in lung cancer multidisciplinary teams, we see the impact of stigma. We see the denialism and the hopelessness and the passivity about instituting smoking cessation. And I bore my multidisciplinary team every week by carrying on about this, but I'm happy to do it. So stigma is very tightly linked to attitudes towards and around smoking, the tobacco industry, and is very, very complicated by all of the social and cultural phenomena that surround all of that. So our next question is quite open-ended and is, in your opinion, how can we ensure equity in lung cancer screening programs? So that's huge. I think that's where the focus on local issues comes to play. We have to get it right at a national level in our country and in yours. So that means robust selection criteria, strong referral pathways, tough standardisation criteria and funding, funding, funding for the scan, the screening, the nursing support, the surgical workforce and the multidisciplinary team care. That's the national stuff. And then the local stuff needs to focus on the individual populations, the stigma issues around the groups 
the health literacy, the trust in healthcare resources, the geography, the miles and miles of dirt roads, whether you need an aeroplane, all those sorts of things. And so I think that combination of national and local issues is probably what is going to be required and, and, and some flexibility and adaptability. What the UK does will be very different from what Australia does and what the United States does. And I think also putting it pretty right up the top of the priority list because we should regard ourselves as failing if we don't ensure equity and, and, and we'll probably need to work on how to measure it as well. You also see lung cancer patients. Could you share what it is like to interact with lung cancer patients, the common cases you see, and where you see areas for improvement in patient care? Such a rich question. So it's a cliche, but they're all different, and everybody has their own personal needs and a particular situation. I'm much braver and more straightforward than I was. It is something that's scary to deal with for healthcare providers, but what I've found is that people with a tough, scary, highly stigmatised diagnosis of lung cancer need is honesty and directness and a sense that you're there for them, that you'll be able to deal with it and that you have things to offer. Even if what you're offering is highly expert, supportive and palliative care, you need to be able to make sure that your patients feel that you've got them, you've got their back and you're there for them. That's the general stuff. Everyone's different. But the similar things is that almost universally, it's a shock. It can attack their morale, their sense of identity. And even just yesterday, I saw a gentleman who was diagnosed incidentally with a stage 1A, has had very successful surgery. It was probably smoking related, but he hadn't smoked for many years. He didn't deserve it. And he looks fantastic. He looks really, really well. He's eight weeks post-op. He's managing his pain well. He had robotic surgery. He's very lucky. And he doesn't need adjuvant therapy. If he needs it, he has a mutation. And he's back to running on the beach. He's exactly what you want. And the biggest thing he's facing now is a psychological crisis. It's challenged his sense of identity. It's threatened his future as a father and a breadwinner. And that was the that was the focus of our consultation. We'll do a follow-up scan in a few months. I checked his wounds, checked his lung function. It's all good. But he needs a, a lot of help, not just from me, in how to deal with this in terms of what has just happened to him and how does he think about himself and and his family's future. So that's really important to be aware of that sort of thing. The other area that's really important is helping people with lung cancer who smoke, helping them stop. And I've learned a lot over the years from colleagues, from just thinking about it, reading about it and training myself and being very involved with the tobacco control groups and smoking cessation groups from IASLC and my local uh, organisations. And what I've learned is I don't know very much, but there's plenty of information out there and that we shouldn't be afraid of it, we shouldn't stigmatise it, we should present smoking cessation as something that's my job, our job as healthcare providers, and that we're there to support our patients, that everyone should be able to stop smoking, but that it will be very, very hard, and that help should be offered. One of my American colleagues many years ago said to me, nobody gets away from me without a chat and a script, and I've taken that on as, on as a mantra, and I'm always trying to 
persuade people. And, and we use a lot of humour here to let me refer them to the quit line, to feel like I'm a bit of a cheerleader for them in smoking cessation. And areas for improvement in patient care, all of the above. In Australia, we need so many more lung cancer nurses. I don't have access to a dedicated lung cancer nurse in my institution, and we're working hard on that. We've had an injection of federal funds to provide a few more nurses, but we do not have a lung cancer nursing workforce to match that of other important cancer streams. So there's, oh, and one more thing we're working on very hard with a group of investigators is is developing a a lung cancer real-time data platform so we can really track, follow and react to what we're doing. So there's so many areas where we can improve things. Wonderful. That was a really great response. Thanks, Dr. So you you mentioned, you know, just how hard it, it is to stop smoking. I think that is a really important point because you know, for individuals who might not be struggling with addiction to smoking, it's it's hard maybe to understand or to, to really grasp like how hard smoking cessation is. But, you know, from talking with patients um, who, who do have a smoking history, it really is challenging. It's, it's not just a, a mental thing. It's not just like that individuals who are smoking don't have the willpower or, or desire to stop smoking. But, you know, there are other... I, there are a lot of physical, mental, emotional, you know, effects of um, trying to stop smoking. And so I think it's just really important that we educate people about that. And as you had touched upon right now, at least in the U.S., the smoking, increasing awareness about lung cancer screening is somewhat separate from smoking cessation resources. And I think if we're able to really connect those two efforts since they, they should be you know, really parallel efforts. And if we're able to include resources on or information about lung cancer screening in smoking station centers and vice versa, I think that can be really helpful because um, at least in the U.S. right now, that there's not a super clear bridge between lung cancer screening and smoking cessation unless unless in physicians choose to do it as an individual choice. And so I, I definitely think that integrating, you know, smoking cessation with lung cancer screening and, and really explaining like how they're different since I, I think we also get questions about um you know what if I get lung cancer screening it does that mean that I don't have to worry about smoking cessation and kind of vice versa so I think just education on both of those topics um is really important and so I we're wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what a multidisciplinary team is and why it's so important in improving patient outcomes yeah so Our multidisciplinary team is exactly what it says it is. So it's a team of people who, for lung cancer, for example, um, who include all the clinicians and allied health practitioners who are important to lung cancer care. So obviously respiratory physicians, surgeons, pathologists, radiologists, medical and radiation oncologists, and and a long list of key key other people, nursing staff, physios, psychological support, palliative care, supportive and palliative care physicians. We've recently done some work in Australia looking at our MDT workforce and our landscape, and and we do know that we struggle across the board to have what would probably be regarded as an essential core group in many centres. We don't necessarily have surgeons at every MDT, for example, and not every institution that probably should have one does have one, and we're working on that. Why is it so important? Because it provides increased survival, and there is a, a fairly strong literature that, uh, at least in, in big retrospective series, tells us that if patients are managed through an MDT, 
that survival outcomes improve. And we've done that in, in our own institution as well. And this is independent of other things, treatment, stage treatment, etc. I think that what actually that is based on is that patients who are managed through multidisciplinary teams get what they need, which is once they're within that team uh, setting, they receive timely care, they're likely to receive guideline adherent care, they're likely to be staged properly, et cetera, et cetera. It does depend on the quality and resourcing of the multidisciplinary team. So that's the first thing. The next thing is that in multidisciplinary teams that are high-functioning, well-resourced, well-staffed and in, in the appropriate setting, a big cancer centre with what it needs and high volume, they're likely to have access to things like rapid um, access to PET scanning, to mediastinal staging, to molecular analysis, to clinical trials and to appropriate surgery. What we do have concerns about, and again, the data on this varies from study to study and setting to setting, is community-based oncology care where we may not see that patients have access to each key component. So that's that's sort of uh, outcomes, benefit of multidisciplinary team care. In terms of other benefits, to the, certainly to the, the, the healthcare provider members of the MDT, there's education, there's rapid access to referrals, there's allied support to the patients. So it's all around timeliness, treatment, receipt and appropriateness of care. So you spoke a little bit on tobacco control and smoking cessation mm-hmm. earlier. So could you please share with us, you know, your current work and ideas on this topic? So I've alluded to that uh, earlier. So there's a strong focus actually on providing good smoking cessation support to my own patients, always with the knowledge that I'm not a good, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't have any fine motivational interviewing skills, for example. I'm, I'm trying to learn. And it may be that a, a busy pulmonologist is not the person to do in detail motivational interviewing. We work closely with our screening investigator community on how to integrate uh, smoking cessation. We've got a research program on that into into future lung cancer screening studies. We're very engaged in Australia on the impact of the e-cigarette epidemic. Uh, We have um, different approaches to e-cigarettes in Australia to other countries, and it may reflect the fact that we're dealing with a different a different phenomenon uh, in the UK, e-cigarettes, as you know, are embraced and probably started in a better way, uh, made by small companies that weren't owned by the tobacco industry. The stop smoking services provided e-cigarettes to their to their um, patients. But in Australia, we are, before we've had a chance to infe- effectively look at the role of e-cigarettes in our setting, we have been swamped by the epidemic, the tobacco companies and the advent of disposables and rapid youth uptake. So we've probably missed the boat on effective use of e-cigarettes. Personally, I don't think we've missed very much. I don't think they're particularly effective. I think that there's an enormous need to educate the healthcare workforce on providing good smoking cessation. And I'm also engaged in a big program of research looking at integrating smoking cessation effectively in cancer clinics to involve the participation of all strands of healthcare providers, so from clinicians right through to radiation technicians, so how that would have an impact. It's wide-ranging, it involves many people, and it's absolutely fascinating. What do you believe the future of lung cancer screening will look like in Australia? Oh, such a good question. We're debating with ourselves on... The the big picture, when will it happen? We don't know when, if, or probably hopefully when the government will sign off on it. We don't know how long it will take to start and we don't know 
the fine details of the structure. We recently at a meeting here had a very compelling presentation from a Canadian ILST investigator who's overseeing a screening program in her province. Uh, and they have a, a, a very um, beautiful and integrated platform, uh, electronic health platform, platform, which facilitates with referrals into and from the screening program. We don't have a setup for that at the moment. And I think that without that, we're going to face we could face some roadblocks and traffic jams in terms of getting people from scan to nodule clinic to surgery to biopsy, etc. So I think that what will it look like in Australia? What I want it to look like is a beautifully integrated, federally funded, standardised, beautifully structured program that has clear pathways in and through the system. I suspect we won't get that initially. We may need to roll it out locally and test things along the way. But we have a very, very motivated group of healthcare providers wanting to work in that area. So there's there's um, some hope there. Thank you. Those were all of the questions we had prepared for you. So this concludes our podcast. And again, we would like to reiterate, we're so grateful that you came to speak on this podcast and for your willingness to share your wealth, knowledge, and perspective on many of the pressing issues in the lung cancer world. We appreciate all the work and research you are currently doing. And thank you to everyone for listening to our podcast. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alcsi.org. This week, we have a podcast with lung cancer survivor, Carrie Mitchell. Zoom registration and information on these individuals can be found on our website under calendar events or in our Instagram bio. Thank you and have a great day, everyone. Mm -hmm.